Let's talk about sarcoma, a podcast that looks at the expected, the unexpected, and everything in between post-sarcoma diagnosis. Brought to you by Socket to Sarcoma and the Cooper Rice Braiding Foundation. With me, your host, Michael Whipper-Whipfley. And me, Catherine Mahoney. In this episode, we chat to some incredible people who share their sarcoma journey from the heart. Welcome to the podcast, Louise. It's great that you're able to join us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, I just wanted to start by asking you to tell um, the listener a little bit about yourself. Uh, yeah, so I am 32 years old now. I uh, have a five-year-old son and my husband, Alan. Yeah, I mean, we live a pretty normal life. We just, you know, we go to the beach when the weather's good and go camping and yeah, we just live a quiet life, just the three of us. And yeah, it's great. Do you, um, how old were you when you were diagnosed? Uh, I was, um, well, so I was diagnosed like the evening before my 22nd birthday. Oh, no. <laughs> That's not a great anniversary to remember. Yeah, yeah, it was a fun birthday. So I spent my 22nd birthday having a um, CT scan done of my chest. So, um, yeah, I felt very bad for my poor GP because he was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, I don't want to ruin your birthday, but... I'm going to um, ruin so your yeah. birthday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's coming in hot, so just be ready. Oh, but, um, yeah. So I was, yeah, 22. I mean, that's really young. How did you feel? You, you know, you're a healthy young person. Were, were you sort of? Was there a sense of disbelief? Did you want a second opinion? Um, I didn't. I didn't really want a second opinion, but yeah, it was definitely. Um, so I had had all these tests done and everything. And then, uh, so my doctor called me, I was driving home from work. So it was, must've been about five, five thirty, And, um, he said, you know, you need to come into the clinic now. And, um, I was like, okay. And I said, um, like, I'd like to go and get Alan from home. And, um, I said, so I probably won't get there till, like because the clinic closes at six o'clock or something and he said it's okay we'll keep it open and wait for you so I knew sort of going in I knew it must have been something bad because they wouldn't have kept it open otherwise and um yeah so we got there and it was after hours and um yeah they told us I, I don't even I don't remember a lot about it like my ears were just sort of ringing after they sort of said what it was and then um yeah like we just all I, the only thing I think I really remember from it was that he said, um, you know, we don't know, it's sarcoma, bone cancer, uh, we don't know which one it is. And hopefully it's not Ewing's because Ewing's is the really aggressive one that you have to worry about. And um, it turned out that it was Ewing's. <laughs> but so you I did, was but, like, great. Yeah, I remember so I was that. like, oh my God, this is the end. But uh, yeah, thankfully um, I was okay. How did it present itself? So you had a sore leg. Yeah, so it was actually, it was Australia Day uh, that year, so 2012. Um, and so we had people over our house that year and um, I'd had a few drinks and fell over and <laughs> banged my leg. Australia Day. Uh, yeah, yeah, typical <laughs> Australia Day. And, um, As a yeah, younger I just person, sort of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so I just put it down to, you know, um, that I'd just bang my leg and, um and then it went on and I used to work in a bar, so I was on my feet a lot. And um, they used to, uh, when I first saw the doctor, they thought it was bursitis or something, you know, like you fall and got a bit of a bump on my leg. Um, 
yeah, and then it just it just kept getting worse. Like it was, I was in tears at night, and I just couldn't sleep. It was just probably the worst pain. I like I've had a kid, and it was the worst pain I've had. <laughs> um, yeah, so I. I kept going back and they said, we, we, we took myself to emergency. Like Alan drove me to emergency, I think twice. And both times they x-rayed it. They said, there's nothing there. You know, it's best I just got to go home. And then the third time it was this young doctor. She was female. I wish I knew her name so I could go back and tell her, but she said, Oh, there's just something on you. Like it just looked odd. You know, like she said, there was something on my x-ray. So she sent me for an MRI and then that was how they found it from there. But it was three attempts that you, um, that you had to yeah, go so through. Yeah, so it was, yeah, so my birthday's in June. So it was six months wow. of, um, yeah, like multiple Oh, I couldn't even tell you how many visits to the doctor and three three tries at um at emergency before, before yeah they diagnosed. figured it out yeah um had you even heard of sarcoma before then no nah, never never heard of it I didn't yeah I didn't even know there was a bone cancer no and so yeah. so you finally got your diagnosis just before your twenty second birthday <laughs> you had your MRI um how long before treatment started. I can't remember exactly, but it was quick. It was very quick. Couldn't tell you exactly how long, but it was within really within a week, mm-hmm. a week to two weeks. Um, Louise, was there a lot of information um, available to you? Were you given a lot? Did you have to kind of hit Google? You know, how, um, how did you sort of process what it was? So I was really lucky. They have a um, like a youth cancer team. So it's when you fall, it's like a young adult um, cancer team. So which was a lifesaver. I can't even like begin to describe how helpful they were. So it's sort of when you fall between that age of like when you're you're technically an adult, but you're like, I'm not an adult. Like, still <laughs> I'm, a kid. An, I'm still a yeah, kid. I need an adultier adult. <laughs> yeah, I think someone above me, please. <laughs> yes. They helped us a lot with all the information and um, thankfully my work at the time, they were really good as well. Um, And I had, you know, one of the things was they said, you know, do you have income protection? And I was like, well, I I don't know. (laughs) I've never even, like income protection never crossed my mind at that age. And um, thankfully I did. The company that I work for, they said that um, they just, they used to, you could opt in and out of it, but they, um, they just made it blanket so that everyone had it, like it wasn't a choice. Thank goodness, because mm. I think if they'd given me the choice of more money, I was going to say income it, protection, uh, yeah, more money, I would have just gone, yeah, money. <laughs> so thankfully they did. So mm. I was looked after. The biggest thing was because my GP had sort of said, hopefully it's not Ewing's. And when I had the biopsy and I found that it was Ewing's, that was really, really frightening because I just remember him saying it was the most aggressive type of the bone cancers and, you know, a lot harder to treat and everything like that. So um, that was probably the, the worst part of it when I found out what type it was. Yeah. So, so how did your treatment, you know, from kind of diagnosis through to now, how did that look? I mean, obviously probably too many ops to, to name them all but a bit of an overview yeah so I had um I've had so I started off with three months of chemo mm-hmm. um so went straight into that so just before I started chemo they put me on um these shots that sort of 
shut down your ovaries and they put you into like a fake menopause um, because we're obviously still wanting to have kids in the future. Um, I mean, I was lucky I was already married. So um, I was going to ask, yeah. did, did that come up? Did they ask if, if you, you know, about the fertility options yeah. that you had? It wasn't really a choice. They just said, you know, you can have these shots that would protect your ovaries uh, to a degree, um, but that um, there was no time for freezing eggs or anything like that. Like even though we were in a position where we could have frozen our eggs, um, but there just wasn't time because it's such an aggressive cancer. So um, obviously I did the shots um so we started them and then right after that, yeah, straight into it was three months of chemo. And then um, I had my first operation in September of 2012. And then, um, yeah, another year of chemo after that. And then I've had six operations on my leg since then. So it's been, it's been fun. It's been a, <laughs> yeah, it's been a journey. Yeah, it has. Yeah, it's um, it's just it's not like all the operations were more just because um, like so they were trying to salvage your limb obviously and mm-hmm. keep your legs. So mine was in my left tibia. So initially they did a bone allograft, which is where they use like a donor bone from someone else and put that into my tibia. And um, it fused really well at the top, but the bottom of my tibia, because it's such a small bone, um, it just kept breaking. Um, and so then they'd put plates in, they put screws in, the plates would snap, the screws would snap. I fell pregnant uh, September of 2014, which was amazing. Um, mm. They, you know, they'd sort of told us that uh, – even with those shots that we would struggle to have kids. Um, and we went into it and we had to just do like ovulation tracking. So they take your bloods every month and tell you when you're ovulating. And um, I fell pregnant the first month, which was insane. So we were expecting it to be this long, hard slog yeah. of, you know, trying and trying. And yeah, so I had my son in June of 2015. Now you touched on um, Alan talking about the sort of bulk, you know, text to everybody. Um, how did you position your diagnosis with your friends and, and, and sort of did that change any of your friendship groups? Um, it did. Like there was probably a few people who I thought were close friends of mine who really just dropped off. Um, I think it was just too much, especially at, like I do on like as shit as it was at the time like I do understand you know like being 20 like in your 20s and sort of being presented with this possibility of of dying it was just it was just too much for some people and um yeah they just disappeared but then you know the core friends that I've had in my life since I was little like since I was in school basically they were they all were amazing you know they all really like sort of just gathered around me and yeah took really good care of me and I lost a couple of friends but the people I thought who would be there for me they were there for me so wasn't really I was lucky. Mm -hmm. And do you think a cancer diagnosis has changed your life? Yeah definitely definitely I think um, I do think I'm probably more appreciative of things now than I was before Um, but I do also think like sometimes I kind of miss the um, like the, the innocence of it all, like before I got sick, you know, like now if my leg gets sore, I always think 
oh god you know worst case scenario yeah Yeah, is it back which is ridiculous now because my leg is titanium so (laughs) (laughs) good luck with that but it's still there it's it's still there and Mm -hmm. I just I just miss like a sore leg just being a sore leg sometimes but you do um what what else do you miss about pre-sarcoma life if anything um it probably because I really like working out I like lifting weights it's probably my own fault that I've had more operations than I should have because I probably went a bit too hard at the gym <laughs> and um <laughs> I don't know, they told like me to I say I understand it. what you're saying but I don't <laughs> <laughs> they told me I could lift weights but I don't think they were anticipating me to lift as heavy weights as I was and then um Olympic yeah, gold I, level oh, yes come on quite, no. <laughs> yeah I mean it was sort of when I was at my fittest which was probably like 2018 and I was lifting like sort of 100 kilo deadlifts and then after that I like broke my leg again so oh, I've been a bit more I've been a bit more sensible since good then. you're a mum now come on yeah <laughs> I know so um yeah just sort of going back when I fell pregnant with Flint I my leg broke when I was pregnant mm-hmm. so I had to spend I think it was about six months worth of my pregnancy on crutches. So that was Oh, fun. that's not fun. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure yeah. on the armpits. I've, I've yeah, had the, yeah, yeah, I've had the crutches. Not fun, not fun. Yeah. And that's not so, pregnant. Um, yeah. So then when Flint was only um, three months old, I had to have another operation. So that was, I think of all the ones I've had, that one was the worst just mm-hmm. because he was just so little and I felt guilty because, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't breastfeed anymore and I felt bad and yeah, it was, and just taking him away from me even like when I, I wasn't in hospital for long, maybe five days. Um, but yeah, it was a very, very long five days. I bet it was. Um, mentally, yeah. I mean, everything you've gone through must be so challenging. Were you offered, um, you know, post-treatment exercise, nutrition or, or any mental health, well-being sort of help along the way? Uh, yeah, I definitely was. Um, I don't, I didn't really take them up on any of it. Just, I don't know, just the way I operate. I think I've always just kind of, you know, like I I like to go to the gym now, but I wasn't like during treatment. I um I was one of those unlucky people who put on weight when they were on chemo, which I was feeling a lot ripped off about. <laughs> I was like, come on, dude, I was meant Something. to lose weight. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Give me a benefit here. So, um, yeah, when I finished treatment, I was quite, overweight and um yeah was really not well by the end of it um obviously all that chemo was it took such a toll on me um it took a long time to sort of get back to health I, I probably finished so it would have been 2014 probably when I finished and then I fell pregnant so I was never going to lose weight then and um yeah so once my son was born and I had that last stop that I really you know I lost about 30 kilos and then um yeah so it's been good since then um but yeah it was I think for me like just being able to go to the gym and exercise and things like that has been really good for my mental health Mm -hmm. but then um like I struggle a lot with my like limitations like I get really frustrated because like I've had all these ops there's things I can't do I can't run um and I mean, even if I could run on this leg, that you're not supposed to because it's too much um, sort of jarring through mm-hmm. the so you've knee had to replacement. Make changes. 
Yeah, and it's just frustrating because I'm still, you know, I'm only 32, I'm still young, and I have a five-year-old who does not like that we can't have running races. So <laughs> that's what Alan's for. Get Alan yeah, running. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Poor Alan. He has to do come all on, that stuff. Come on, Alan. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it does get frustrating when I can't do things that mm-hmm. I want to do. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm lucky overall. Yes. No, I think I think you are. I don't like running, so I, when you're saying running, I'm like, it's not a bad thing, Louise. It's other things. You know, cycling's fine. Um, uh, what what final message would you leave to recently diagnosed patients um, who might be listening to the podcast? Okay, so I would probably just say to allow yourself to have bad day when you need it because I feel like there was a lot of overwhelming amount of people telling you to be positive and I think overall I was positive but you do need to allow yourself to feel bad because it sucks and it sucks going through chemo it sucks having operations and it is a lot so I think when you feel bad just allow yourself to have those feelings. I used to give myself a day and I'd just say, right, today's a day. I don't feel great. I'm just going to, I'm going to sit on the couch and feel sorry for myself and eat some chocolate. And then the next day I'd be like, right, well, we did that yesterday. So, you know, let's get up and sort of just start fresh and just go from there. And, and also the other thing would be just for girls who are younger, just like, just don't lose hope that you can have kids because, it's it's tough and it's not the way people would like to go about it but man I wouldn't I wouldn't change my little man for the world I would go through it all again if I ended up with Flint all over like he's just <laughs> honestly like he's just the best kid he's just a miracle so Oh, yeah, Louise, like I just... think that's, that's just, that's wonderful life advice for everyone. I think, you know, that some <laughs> days are going to suck. Um, yeah. But yeah, look at, you know, look at you guys now. Yeah, exactly. Wonderful. You just gotta... yeah, I'm sure you're a great mum, even if you can't run. <laughs> <laughs> even if I'm the slow one, according to <laughs> Mum, you're slow. Yes, but you're slow but with, be- with, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I have the best memory in the family, so I've got that going for me. <laughs> exactly, you'll never forget anything. Louise, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Um, oh, you too. Thanks very much. Welcome to the podcast, Cooper. How are you today? Hello, I'm very well, thank you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey with sarcoma. Um, well, my name is Cooper Tarleton. Um, I, I was diagnosed in 2018. Um, I finished, I went to boarding school in Sydney and, um, I finished school. Um, I graduated in 2018 and I was diagnosed at the end of that year um, in November, just after I'd finished my HSC. Um, Yeah, and it kind of just started there and I guess I'm kind of still in my journey. I'm all clear now, but um, yeah, that's where it started. I mean, how did you feel when your diagnosis were con- you know was confirmed? You, you you know you're a super healthy young man. W- was it a real shock? Um, yeah, at first it was a shock. It was mainly 
I was mainly in disbelief, I would say. Um, it was, I felt for a, for a while it was just kind of like a big inconvenience, kind of like it just, like, I just didn't expect it to happen. So it was like, I just had to wait a year to do everything that I wanted to do or wait two years to do everything I wanted to do. Um, I don't know. And then sometimes it would, the reality of it would really hit me and I would just, yeah, then that would upset me, but um, mainly, yeah, disbelief, I would say. And so, you know, in 2018, how did it present? Why did you go to the doctor? Um, So I was playing lots of sport, um, AFL, high jump, basketball, um, and I just kind of had sort of like, like a lump behind my knee, behind my right knee. Um, and I just felt that like I was losing like a lot of movement in my knee and like I was starting to get pains and I kind of just like, I've never really had an injury ever in my life. So I kind of just kept going through it. Like I talked to people about it, but I just didn't think it was anything serious. Um, so I, I probably just left it for a few months really and just kept playing sport and everything. And then, um, I was just focusing on school. Um, yeah. And then pretty much the day I finished school, um, I just told mom that I was in like lots of pain and I had this big lump and yeah. And then we went to the doctors the next day and then it all started from there, just scans and, um, yeah, no one really knew what it was at first. So you just kept going for ultrasounds and MRI scans, x-rays, just anything to see what it was. And then I think it was about two days later, we got called back in and that's when I was diagnosed. So it's pretty quick. Yeah, very quick. And and how long um, from diagnosis till treatment started for you? Was it Was that also quite quick? Yeah, that was very quick too, actually. So I had pretty much within within um, two weeks, I was starting chemotherapy. It was very quick, I'd say. Um, Did you find, um, you know, because obviously it, you're in a blur, you've just finished your HSCs, life's about to, you know, you're about to hit uni in the next phase of your life and suddenly this is happening. Um, were you given a lot of information from uh, the clinicians and the team that you were working with? Yeah, they were excellent, actually. Like, all the um, the doctors and nurses and everything were very helpful. Like, yeah, I felt I was, like, quite informed. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I wasn't, like, I was able to ask lots of questions and um, things like that. Like, yeah, I'd say I was, yeah, it was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, we are, we'll be speaking to your mum, I think for episode three. Um, and I'm sure that she was across everything. So there's always two of you, isn't there? What what I've learned from yeah. talking to some other people on their journey is, you know, tr- don't do it on your own, always take someone. So if you're kind of a little bit overwhelmed with what's going on, the other person is taking the notes and is really kind of present and listening. So your mum, yes. your mum was your wing woman, wasn't she? I, I, I believe. Yeah, if if I didn't have her, I don't know what I would have done. <laughs> Spoken like a true son, and that's what us mums like to hear. <laughs> um, 
Coop, in, in all seriousness, when when it came to talking uh, to your friends, was that a really difficult thing for you to do to to explain your diagnosis to them? Um, yeah, it was very difficult. Um, sort of because everything happened so quickly, and because I was starting so quickly, it was hard to like. It was hard to take the time to tell them as well. Um, so I kind of just told like my really close friends and my girlfriend and like, yeah, that was mainly, they were the main people. And then everyone else kind of found out secondhand, I'd Mm -hmm. say. Um, but yeah, it was, it was tough. Like it was almost like I put myself in the position of the doctor telling me to tell them. Mm -hmm. So that was very tough, I'd say. Yeah. Did it, did it affect any of your friendship groups? Did you notice certain people could handle it and, and stepped up and others just didn't know what to say? Um, yeah, I'd say. I'd say so. But, I mean, that's okay. Like, mm-hmm. everyone everyone takes things differently. And, yeah, like, everyone, all my friends are only young too. Um, but, yeah, like, it showed, everyone showed, like, really good support and, I was very, yeah, I was very grateful for everyone, I guess. Um, Yeah, I was very lucky to just, like, all my friends were very, like, um, close. And, like, I'd say it built built my relationships a lot better with a lot of my friends. Um, Yeah. Yeah, that's what that's what a few um, people have have said on the pod that it's for all of the the difficulties you know you do there are some some really you know greater bonds and friendships because of it, um, yeah. which is a good positive and a good way to to look at it, I suppose. Um, so from from diagnosis to now, how many surgeries have you had? Um, so. I've had two major surgeries, um, which is it's called a right a right distal femoral GMRS. So that's catchy, um, short yeah, and catchy, <laughs> short and catchy. Um, so that's pretty much I got pretty much a whole new um, femur, mm-hmm. which is a metal femur. I got that twice, um, and I've had. Um, a biopsy on that was before that was the first one I had to um, for the cancer and then I had to I had I got a portacath in and a portacath taken out um, so I think five I think that's right okay and and yeah. would you say cancer a uh, cancer diagnosis has changed your life Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, it kind of just, yeah, it just changed like pretty much instantly. I'd say, like the day, the day I got diagnosed, I guess it changed, and then it kind of just developed from there. Like um, now, like as a nineteen-year-old, my main focus is like my health and just. Um, just living every day to like its potential, I guess now, which is different to what I would have, what I would have before. Um, so yeah, I'd say it's almost counterintuitive, but it's almost changed my life for the better a little bit as well. 
Um, but yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Um, and what what about um, life pre sarcoma? Is there anything that you miss? I mean, you were you really active um, in a sports sense. Is that something you've been able to to get back into, or have you got to kind of just take that all slow? Um, yes, not really. Um, yeah, I, like um, I miss yeah, I miss sport a lot. Um, I miss just partying. I miss just being like a part of something, I guess, as well, like a part of a team or a part of a group. Um, Because it was always good to like meet new people and just and things like that. Um, I used to play a lot of basketball. So, yeah, I miss basketball a lot. And I just miss like competing, I guess. I'm a pretty competitive person. So, yeah, that sucks. But. I compete in what I can, I guess. Yes. And you've um, you've started at university, haven't you? Yeah, it's been really good. I've met lots of new good friends, which is good. Um, and, yeah, just started my life, I guess. And, Coot, what are you studying at university? Um, I'm studying um, science at UNSW in Kensington in Sydney. How exciting. Um, so what's, yeah. what's the future plan? Um, so I'm looking to study medicine um, and become a doctor, I guess. Not too sure what type or or what pathway I'd like to take, but mm-hmm. I know I'd like to go into the health field. Has has that been spurred on by your, your sarcoma journey or did you always want to do that? Um, yes, I've always wanted to do that. Um, it's just kind of solidified. Um, my sarcoma journey has solidified. Me wanting to do that, I yeah. guess. So, yeah. Magic. I'm sure you would make a great medical type in some in a few years to come. Um, Coop, were you offered any external pastoral or practical support? Um, you know, whether it was through sarcoma not for profits or canteen or the cancer council. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Um. Red Kite had, has helped heaps. Mm-hmm. Um. Just with lots of little things as well, like the things that people don't really think about, I guess, just like food and petrol and, um, yeah, just things like that. They've really helped out. And um, Canteen has helped out a lot as well, um, just with being just a good support. Um, we've I've gone to a few dinners and things with Canteen and, um, yeah, they've been really good as well. And so were they suggested by your medical team or did you um, search, did you and your mum search them out? Yeah, they were suggested mainly by the medical team, mm-hmm. yes. Cooper, you're a proud Wiradjuri man and I understand you had some cultural healing during your treatment. Could you let the audience know what that looked like? Um, yeah, so it was mainly um, just like smoking, um, like from like leaves and things. Um, and yeah, I don't really know much about the, um, about cultural healing. Um, although I felt it did help. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it was, um, it, it just made me happier too, I guess, which helped, um, just to connect back, connect back with, um, like my culture and, um, with the land, it just helped. Like, I don't know. I don't. It's like a bit of an intangible, but um, 
No, it's part yeah. of your heritage, part of your culture, yeah. and it felt right. Yeah. So how did you combine cultural treatment and Western medicine to combat the diagnosis? Was it just that one time that you, you did the, the smoking? With yes. The mm-hmm. Yes, it was only one time. Um, and it was sort of towards the end of my treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, once, uh, once I had sort of gotten um, used to all my treatment, all my, the Western medicine and chemotherapy and, um, yeah, so it was, yeah, towards the end and then I haven't done anything since. Mm -hmm. So you just combined them towards the end? Yes. Yeah. Um, what were the major challenges that you experienced, um, in your education and, and I guess sort of family life trying to still be part of the family, still study, but also you're going through this huge sarcoma journey. Um, yeah, so I, I finished my HSC basically with cancer. Um, and then from then I didn't do any university or anything, any studying last year. Um, but I guess it was tough because I was quite sick when I, before I was diagnosed. Um, and yeah, so I guess that was a bit of a challenge. Um, and then just family life, it was pretty, it was, it was difficult because I was always in hospital. I had, um, I did nine months of chemo, um, and that was from November to, um, July, um, and because I was always in hospital and I was always sick and I was always sleeping, it was hard to like um, just keep my relationships with all my family and well, not keep them, but just yeah, it was difficult. I'd say mm-hmm. I'm not sure. So, what would your final message be to somebody listening to to this podcast who's just been diagnosed with sarcoma? Um, I'd just like to say, I guess anyone. Anyone going through a tough time, like whether you're going through sarcoma or not, everyone goes through a tough time at some point in their life. Um, but just like, just keep going. Like anyone can, anyone can get through it. Um, it's difficult, I know, but if um, life wasn't meant to be easy and if it was, like what would be the point of life at all if it was meant to be easy? So. I say just just keep going. Um, yeah, just like people to go away with like just know that like time doesn't wait for anyone and like life can change at any point. Just keep your relationships close. Just, yeah, stay motivated. Just keep, just keep being the best person that they can be, I guess, all the time and stay positive. Things will always turn out. Wise words. I certainly wasn't as wise as you when I was 19. (laughs) (laughs) Cooper, thank you so much for your time um, and being honest and sharing with the podcast and the listeners. And good luck with your studies. And hopefully you'll be back in the the classroom before we know it. Thank you, Cooper. Thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast, Deborah. Lovely to have you on. Thank you for calling me. Deborah, tell me a little bit about yourself and your sarcoma journey. Okay, so um, 
in terms of myself, I'm, I think I'm relatively young, fit and healthy person. The, about two years ago, um, I noticed a lump in my lower abdomen in between my ab muscles, which I thought was a bit unusual. Um, because I do a lot of exercise, it was easy for me to notice that there was something unusual in my body. So I went to my doctor and said, I've got this lump. She did um, get me to go and have an ultrasound, which she said didn't show anything. So I carried on um, for about a year and then um, continuing doing my exercises, but noticed that the lump was a little bit bigger and said, oh, look, I'm going to go back to the doctor because I know that they don't think there's anything wrong. But this is now just it's in a really inconvenient place. It's on the level where my jeans and all my trousers sit. So I just want to get have it looked at and have it taken out because um, it's just a bit inconvenient now. So I went back and said, look, here's this lump. And she said, oh, yes, yes, still nothing to worry about. I'll give you the name of a plastic surgeon that you can go and see. But go and have another ultrasound just to prove to you that there's nothing wrong. Um, so I went for the ultrasound that afternoon and it was very apparent that there was definitely something wrong. So he said you need to go and get an MRI. So I booked in to get um, booked in to see my doctor the next day. I knew that my doctor didn't work, um, but I just said I need a referral for an MRI. I don't mind who I see. So I booked in first thing the next day get to the doctors to be told that my doctor is on the way to see me and can I come back in half an hour. So that increased my anxiety levels uh, pretty much out of the roof because the doctor doesn't come in to see you on their day off unless there's something wrong. So luckily my partner was still at home so I phoned him up said don't go to work I need you to come to the doctors with me. So we went back to the doctors she booked me in straight away to um, get the CT scan, which we went down to do. Um, and obviously that's at that point that I'm panicked, stressed. My partner's obviously not that happy either. Um, so we got that, um, then had to wait for the rest of the day um, to get the results of that scan. Um so that scan, fortunately, didn't show anything else. Referred me to doctor to um, do the next stage. And obviously, that's when it all starts to turn to, um, yes, well, this is a cancer diagnosis and uh, absolute snowball of um, tests and processes from there. Gosh, that's that's a lot to take on. Do you, I mean, for people listening, would you now really strongly say get a second opinion if you don't feel right about something? Yeah, I would say um, if something pops up in your body, yes, it could be absolutely nothing. If you don't think it's right, get a second opinion, um, pursue any tests that you think will make you feel um, more confident about what's going on. So once you had the the correct diagnosis, Deborah, how long before treatment started? Um, I think I got the diagnosis and it was probably about 
four or five weeks before I started radiotherapy, but in that time I had um, a couple of other um, scans as well. So once so I, I had an MRI and then I went for a PET scan a few days later and I went um, straight after that PET scan. I Within a couple of days I got an appointment to see the radio therapy people and then the weight in starting treatment was really about them setting up my um, radiotherapy because they have to take it through you know, more CT scans then make sure they've got um, the right coordinates for the um, delivery of the radiotherapy so it felt like a long time mm-hmm. but really um, it was quite quick did um did you find the information that you were provided was it useful i didn't actually have much information at all i've actually steered clear as much as i can of looking up information about sarcomas and the diagnosis because i actually find that too confronting mm-hmm. to read what i did do um once i was in the system um I googled the names of the various surgeons that were involved to get more of their background and to reassure myself about who they were and what their sort of surgical background was. And then I looked at cancer-related websites that they were involved with because I felt that that gave me information that I could be sure was um, good information. I still find it really confronting to look up information online um, about my diagnosis and prognosis because it's yeah, it's it's a pretty lonely thing to do looking things up on the internet. Yes, and, and, and you're also sitting it's, there with, yeah, it's a minefield Google, and you don't even know how how relevant or out of date or or even you know if it's if it was a proper trial or whatever that you're looking at. Yes, <laughs> stay yeah, away from so, Google. <laughs> Yes, both that is my other message for people. Don't go searching for information on Google because it probably won't help Mm -hmm. you get through what you need to go through. So I was having radiotherapy as a first step, so Mm -hmm. I looked up information about radiotherapy. Um, So I found that helpful because it was a little bit aside from actually looking at what is um, the information about my type of cancer. Mm -hmm. How um how did you find telling friends and family about your diagnosis? Um, well, fortunately or unfortunately, whichever way you look at it, um, I'd had a friend who'd recently had breast cancer, and one of the things that her and her partner talked to me about was how difficult it was managing telling people and um, setting up sort of groups of people that could communicate with each other. So I had that in the back of my mind. Um, In terms of so work, I had a few close friends at work that knew what was happening and knew I was going for tests. But for me at work, it was really important that I was in control of um, the dissemination of that information and planning into me going off work because I didn't want to be confronted by people asking me how I was um, and I just needed to be able to focus on 
getting through all the tests I was having and also getting through my work to the point where I was going to stop working. Um, so there was a few people there that knew pretty early on what was happening. Um, in terms of telling my family, my sister knew about the lump um, and I kind of left the hard job of telling everybody with her really. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, I'm sure she didn't mind helping, out. no. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's difficult enough telling my parents things. Um, obviously they're on the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. um, so that was quite hard. Yes, Fortunately, um, one of my mum's brothers lives quite close to her, so it's okay. They went, yeah, they went um, to spend the day with my mum and dad um, after they found out, so that helped. Um, so, and once everybody knew. Obviously, it was much easier to talk to people. I just didn't want to talk to my mum and dad and tell mm -hmm. them myself what was happening. You know, you were you were super fit um, beforehand. Was it was it hard to hear that that's you know you'd been diagnosed with that? Yeah, it felt very unfair. Mm -hmm. um, but I think uh, cancer doesn't deal with fairness. Um, I did suggest along the journey to a couple of people that I should just like take on the. Um, Keith Richards' lifestyle because he's obviously <laughs> alive and kicking despite poor despite lifestyle choices. Many poor lifestyle uh, choices, I think, yes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that was really um, difficult from the perspective of that. Obviously, done everything I could to stay fit and healthy. Um, and one of the really difficult things for me going through the whole process was what was the outcome going to be for me functionally in terms mm -hmm. of activity is a very big part of my life. In sort of my early meetings with the surgeons, I said, okay, so I tried to compartmentalize what was happening. So after the radiotherapy, I was going to have surgery. So from my perspective, what I needed to do was make sure that I got to the surgery as fit as I possibly could. And then after the operation, um, things were back in my control in terms of I could do as much or as little as I wanted um, to recover. You know, I've got my physios already on board. They've known, they knew the whole time from the initial finding of the lump to the diagnosis. Um, so they were very much on board with making sure I was okay getting into surgery mentally and physically and then ready to work after surgery to help me get back um, to full strength and fitness, whatever that was going to be. And, yes, I'm very fit and I'm very driven about my fitness, but I'm also quite sensible. So I was happy to work within the boundaries. I just needed to know what the boundaries were going to be and how quickly I could move through different stages. And I didn't get any of that information so I pretty much decided I was going to see my own physios because they did know me mm -hmm. um, and I knew that I would do the right thing um, 
so I saw um, the physios in the hospital once I got to the point where I think I'd seen her a couple of times and I said, look, I want to see my own physio. So that's something that you think for anyone listening, you know, don't don't just look at what's in front of you, sort of look at side options. And, and as you yeah. said, you made sure that your physio worked with the hospital one so that they weren't, you know, going off on a tangent. They were kind of working within. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, no, um, that's, that's great advice, I think, for people listening. But you're continuing to work with your physio? Yes. So mm-hmm. I've actually been discharged from the hospital physio now. She's very happy with me. So I keep working with my physio, see her twice a week, and then do my own exercises. Mm-hmm. Which, um, and, yeah, so one of the things I do is I've got my own horse, which... A horse horse. I saw. <laughs> no, horse horse. Not a wooden horse, a proper horse. Okay. No, a real proper horse that uh-huh. lives and breathes. Wow. What's um, he called or she called? He's called Shiloh. Um, right. So I bought him a couple of years ago and he's actually been a really important part of the rehab process as well mm-hmm. because obviously riding for the disabled is quite a big thing anyway. And the good thing about riding is that um, you can just quite passively get a lot of movement through your hips um, and lower body because the horse does the moving and you just sit there and rock around. So that um, has been a good part of, sort of physically my rehab and then obviously using my legs while I'm riding has been a good way to strengthen my legs um, and also good to highlight weaknesses in my left leg that's been operated on and then try and work on those weaknesses because I can um, tell quite clearly what I can do better when I use my right leg as opposed to where the weaknesses are in my left leg. So um, physically, he's been a big part of my rehab, but emotionally mm-hmm. as well. I bet. Emotionally, spiritually, mentally, all of the above. Yes. Big, big shout out to Shiloh. Not sure if he's listening, yes. but yes, big part, big part of your journey. Um, Deborah, yes. thank you so much for sharing. Um, I know it's not easy, um, but re- I really appreciate your time and your honesty. Um, I'd love to to end the our chat just asking you uh, for anyone who's been recently diagnosed with sarcoma. What what might your advice be? Um. Don't go to appointments by yourself (laughs) is probably a good piece of advice. I almost passed out um, after I got my diagnosis. So if people are even just starting that journey where they think they might be going to get a diagnosis, I would definitely be taking someone with you. Um, For me, in amongst, I guess, the chaos of it all, I tried to work out what I could control and what I couldn't control. So... For me, um, health part of getting into my surgery and going through that radiotherapy and being as healthy as I could was um, something I could control. So I made sure that I did that as well as I could. Um, I I did worry about the surgery and how it was going to be, but there wasn't um, much I could do about that because it wasn't really a case of I can have this or not have this. It was not negotiable in terms of I have to go through this process. So I tried to distract myself away from the panic of that process by focusing on what I could do and what I couldn't do. Um, 
So I've managed to clear out a lot of rubbish out of my house in the <laughs> process of getting up for that surgery um, because that was something I could control. Could control. I like yeah. it. Good. Yes. Great advice. Um, Deborah, thank you again so much for your time um, and for sharing your journey. Thank you. That's okay. Thanks for calling. Well, lovely to welcome Beck to the podcast today. Hi, Beck. Hi, thank you. Can you tell me a little bit about your sarcoma journey? Yeah, so I'm I'm 38 now. Was first diagnosed seven years ago when I was 31 with three small little boys. Um, I, I I actually separated from my from my husband at the time, so the boy's father, and lost about 25 kilos. Um, losing that weight, I then sort of just started going to the gym. Found what a lump, which we thought was possibly a hernia. Went and had it checked out, and they said we don't know what it is, so they operated on it. And the lady who operated, the surgeon said to me that she's in her 30 years of operating, never seen anything like it before. It definitely wasn't a hernia. Um, so then we sent it to you. It was obviously sent off for testing. Couldn't work out what it was. Was then sent to the UK and the US. Um, six weeks later, I've got the diagnosis that it was a chondrosarcoma. Um, had it removed, obviously. Well, then, then I went through a series of going and seeing the oncologist. They decided to do a large um, resection of the muscle, of the um, sorry, abdominal muscle, to just to make sure that the margins were clear and everything like that. So I had that six weeks after the, the initial diagnosis, which, of course, was a very sort of, I just wanted it done there and then on the spot, had to, of course, wait for that. Um, was then followed up with three-month checks, then going to six months, then went to my first 12-month check and at my first 12-month check found out that I had this sarcoma or chondrosarcoma again. Um, so I've now got two tumours in the abdominal area which are near my uh, belly button and one just a little bit lower and unfortunately the other test showed that it had gone into my lungs as well. So I've, I've got 16 nodules in my lungs too. So that's my journey where I am now. So now I'm 38 years old with three boys, 12 and twins that are 11 and on this journey again. So, oh yeah. wow, wow! That's a that's a big journey. Are the, are the boys did. are the boys supportive? The boys are fantastic. They do ask lots of questions at times, and I guess I answer those questions when they come up. So, so when you were first diagnosed, um, was that an easy um, was that easy for you to share with your friends and family? Did it take a while to get your head around it? I think I was in shock. Mm -hmm. um, it took me a while to process it. Everybody around me seemed to be really emotional and yet I was numb, I guess. I It took me a little while to actually come to go, oh, okay, yeah, I do have, and to say that I have cancer. It's it's not something, I guess, that you want to be, you know, you hear all these bad things about cancer and everything like that. And although the um, the, the rate of survival now is a lot higher than what it was, finding out that you've got this thing called a sarcoma is when you research it, there's not that much out there. And the first thing my doctor said to me is she's, there's, there's no point researching it because it is so rare and there's not the, the information that is out there is very technical. It's very, there's a lot of medical talk and it was really hard to just to, to get something that was really simple for me. So I was very numb to it for a while. Um, and then, you know, mum, Mum sort of, I think mum struggled with it a bit and I was probably trying to protect her a lot too, being the, the oldest child and, and all that. And, and I was trying to be tough. Yes, um, so yeah. yeah, I did struggle a bit to come to terms with it at first. 
I think I'm better the second, obviously second time around. So it's just a, a daily occurrence. Um, I am a lot better with it this time. I've been there now, and I think yeah, it was just yeah, it was disbelief because I was always told that it was a less than a one percent chance of it coming back. I had more chance of winning lotto than of getting this again. I haven't won lotto yet. Um, not yet. So, not yeah, yet. No, not yet. <laughs> I, hope you, won, I hope you're buying tickets. <laughs> I, I did. I did buy one last week. Didn't, mm-hmm. didn't win a thing. Did um, did the team around you sort of um, provide enough information and support? Did you feel that you were given everything you possibly could at the time? They have. They've been really good. But again, it comes down to the fact there isn't that much information out there for it. It's, it is just so rare that trying to find this information and it is coming from the States, if anywhere. Beck, how many surgeries have you had since diagnosis? I've had the, so I've had three surgeries on, on the sarcoma. So I had the first one was the removal. The second one, now I have no abdominal muscle. It's all mesh, which wow. causes problems in itself. Okay. As you can imagine, I have to maintain a certain weight. Um, it's, it still pinches now, even though it's six and a half years on. And then I had um, a small nodule removed. I think it was about two years afterwards, which was actually done via hook eye surgery where they insert a wire and they hook the wire on and then they go in and remove it that way. And I remember going in for that where the, the wires actually put in done under, um, ultrasound, yeah, ultrasound. And they usually, that's how they remove, um, breast cancer. They, that's how they do that. And when I went in for it, she said to me, um, she had it down in front where she was supposed to be doing this. And she said, are you sure that these directions are correct? Because this is for breast cancer. This isn't, I haven't done this anywhere else before. And I said, no, that's, that's it. So it was just something they tried. So three in total related to this. Mm-hmm. Can't, um, I asked about having these two removed that are the main ones from my abdominal area. And they said that because it has, um, met, met, I can't get to say the word properly, metastasized into my lungs, there really isn't much point in removing those two because as if we can control the ones in the lung, that's the main focus now is the lungs. So I probably won't have any more surgery to remove those two unless they do start to grow. Um, and I, and he said, no, I become uncomfortable. But at the main, at the moment, it's just, they're about, um, so the first tumor seven years ago was golf ball size. I said, had I, had I have not lost the weight, I wouldn't have found it. Um, and I probably wouldn't be here now. Wow. But thankfully I, it was because I lost that weight. They found that. These two now are a little bit smaller than a golf ball. So yeah, those two. And then the ones in my lungs, obviously there's too many of those to, to operate and, and everything. So hopefully that's the end of surgery, but now it's just the treatment side of things with the, with the medications. So you're on oral, aren't you oral? Um, I am. I'm, I'm on a drug called Pazopinib or Votrian, mm-hmm. which is without, thankfully I have a special code after my name because it doesn't respond to any other sort of treatment. Um, so if I didn't have the, if I didn't have this code, it would cost me about $10,000 a month, um, for this medication. Thankfully it doesn't cost me that much. It still Mm -hmm. costs me nearly $200 a month, but it's a big difference between 10,000 and 200. And that's simply because I, my, I'm considered stage four untreatable, but I, and I don't respond to any, I won't respond to conventional, um, chemo or radiation. Beck, how would you say cancer has changed your life? It's, it's, you, you, I guess, and especially now the COVID side of things, it's really, I'm, I'm working from home. I'm a teacher. It's changed everything there. In a way, it's been a positive because 
when everybody else started working from home, so I was on leave. As soon as COVID came around, it, got, it was like, well, my oncologist said, you can't be at work. That's just how it is. And I'd only just returned to work. So I'd only done, I'd only worked four days. And I was, I'd, so I was all excited about getting back to work and, and seeing people again. Um, it's very, and then it got told, no, you need to be back home. Um, once everybody else went back to working from home, they realized that it, there's a spot out there that I can, that I can feel. So I'm still working from home, which has been fantastic in that sense. Uh, the biggest thing I'm finding is that it's very isolating. Mm-hmm. I obviously can't go to the shops. So I have to be very careful about who I am around and who I do interact with. Um, and then, and the same sort of thing as far as teaching, I can teach via Zoom, but it's still not the same as having that contact with people. And this, that's probably been the hardest thing for me is I am quite a social person. Mm-hmm. I do like to get out there and have a, have a chat. Um, so yeah, that's probably the biggest hurdle with the kids. It's them realizing too about they can't have friends over. They can't necessarily go to people's places. It's changed a lot of the things that we used to take for granted. Of um, we've we've fairly open house here. We've got there's the street we live in. There's 13 boys all the same age. Um, they've now had to change that and trying to explain to them that you know mum isn't well. Even and because I guess I try and I, I look quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, you do. You're I, very well. Mm. Yeah, I, I now have my hair coloured. My so one of the side effects of the pisopinib is it turns it. Uh, you lose all the um, the pigmentation out of your hair, so your hair turns white. Um, so I had white hair up until last week, and now we've managed to find a henna colour which I can colour it, which is, is fantastic. Um, but yeah, just the side, just little things with them, the boys that they've noticed and that they've picked up on. Um, so he, the oldest one wasn't coping just with that, for example. And just, it's all those little things you don't really, that you take for granted, I guess, that have, has really changed. But the biggest one would be being able to socialize with people and, and keeping yourself safe. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it can, also protecting the family. So my mum is, does get quite emotional. Mm-hmm. I guess it's coming down to protecting them as well and those people around you um I mean it's, and- it's it's a huge pressure on um you know the whole family but you know you're trying to help your mum you know keep her buoyant yes. who do you turn to when you're having a meltdown or a moment where you know it's just not great and that's it. And that's the hard part. When I was at work, I, it was my close, the teacher friend, the colleague friend beside me. I do have, um, I said my boss, she's fantastic. We will chat back and forth. I'll text her. So she's become a great friend. And if I am having one of those days, I'll just message her. Um, I have the support of a really good psychologist who I have become really, really good friends with over time. And we are probably more friends now than anything. And even tomorrow, it's like, we'll, we'll go for a walk tomorrow and we'll have a bit of a chat. Um, so, and she's somebody that I know I can be completely honest with. And although, you know, it is her job, she's, she's very honest with me as well. And she, she, she's very honest with me and, and how I deal with things too. Um, melt, when you do have those meltdowns, that's the hard time. And those, those meltdowns usually happen in the shower. Um, you know, it, it happens when, I guess when you're seclu- when you're away from people and because you are trying to protect the others around you as well and put that, that's tough front um, across. My GP, I have an also, a, a fantastic GP who I can say, you know, this is, I'll be very honest yeah. and he'll go, yeah, it is, it yeah. is. And it's, and it's not fair, especially when I'm somebody who never smoked, never drank. I, I've, you know, always done, tried to do the right thing, tried to eat healthy as much as possible. Um, yeah, it, it really is. It feels like a kick in the gut sometimes. 
and I used to do a lot of running and even that now I can't run anymore um, because I just, my, my body doesn't let me. Um, it's, I guess it's the failure of the body that, that really, really gets you down. You mm-hmm. think, oh, yeah, I can't believe this is happening. And that's when you have those meltdowns. Um, and you just have, I, I think it's handy having just one or two people that you can just blurt everything out to and you know that they're like, yeah, I've got you. I've got your back. So, yeah. Very important. Very important. Very, very. Um, Beck, before we go, um, I wonder what your final message to um, someone who's been recently diagnosed that might be listening to this podcast would be. Mm-hmm. Breathe. <laughs> First one I think is, mm-hmm. is, is breathe. Um, you get a whole heap of information thrown at you and, and it's, it's really hard to come to terms with it yourself. Take time for yourself. Um, try not to stop doing those things that you enjoy, uh, or taking that time for yourself. For me, it's going and going, going and getting my nails done. Um, because that's just my time out. That's just my time where I know I can just sit and have that. And that is, I guess, a lot of processing time for me as well. Um, the latest thing my oncologist has said is that I have to walk for 20 minutes a day. And my GP agreed. He said the same thing. He said, although you start with 20 minutes, if you can't do 20 or don't, sorry, don't start with 20, start with 10 minutes. Um, just to have that little bit of time to yourself. Uh, because you do get bombarded with information. You mm-hmm. do get, you, you'll get us uh, offered support from everywhere. Everyone will ask you, can I do this for you? Can I do that for you? I have a hard time accepting the help. Um, the last week I haven't been overly well myself and a friend of mine just went and she says, well, she asked, is there anything you can do? Can I do, can I make your meals? Can I do this? Can I do that? And I said, no, no, no. And uh, trying to, cause, because I do want to try and keep it, um, things as, as simple as possible and as routine as they always have been, she actually went and purchased meals for me from a lady who she knows I've got meals off every now and then. Um, And she rocked up on the doorstep Friday and said, here's your meals. Um, So it was just that accepting the help if it is there. And I've said to my boss who, yeah, because everyone at work, of course, wants to make meals. I said, you know what? I am more open to that now because I've realised how much of a help it is. Um, And it gives me that time as well over the weekend where I could just spend it with my boys. I could go, I could, we could go for a walk with them on the weekend or I could go and just sit in the bedroom with them and watch them play their PlayStation and, and things like that. And, and there are some really good, um, support people out there. I'm in contact with a, with a support network called Mummy's Wish who are Mm -hmm. based in, um, Queensland, but they support all over for parents with um, kids under 12 and they've provided a whole heap of information. They've given me books. They've provided teddy bears with little voice recording boxes in them, which my boys have got because I have had a few hospital stays. Um, so they've had their bears with them that have got my voice on them, you know, just saying goodnight and I love, I love you lots and things like that. They've provided meals as well, meal vouchers and cleaning services. So just use those. If you don't feel comfortable, I guess, using the people around you or mm-hmm. not, not so much using them, there are other support places out there too that, are, that can offer you all that support. Is there anything you need? Yeah. Beck, um, thank you so much for, for your honesty and for sharing with us. Um, no problem. Thank you for having me. And, and good luck with your journey. Thank you. Good to speak to you. Sarcoma Awareness Month is a time when we acknowledge those who are currently undergoing treatment and their families, survivors, those yet to be diagnosed, and the memories of those who walked this road, fought valiantly and tragically lost their lives to this cancer. Socket to Sarcoma and the Cooper Rice Braiding Foundation wish to recognise each of these brave individuals, together with the remarkable not-for-profit organisations dedicated to raising funding and awareness for sarcoma, including Rainbows for Kate, 
Kicking Goals for Zav, Hannah's Champs, Stony Steps Against Sarcoma, Joanna Sewell Research Grants, the GPA Andrew Assini Research Grants, and the Sarah Grace Foundation. With the generous help and support of the Australian community, each have worked tirelessly to fund critical research and to further shine a light on sarcoma.